You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Precision Powerlifting Systems. I'm going to go over creating a system. Fits, right? Yeah. Um, so I had alluded to this kind of in a post when I was talking about technique and explaining how important it is to have a system to kind of be able to navigate some of the complexity of the situations, right, that we're going to deal with between the lifter themselves of their own complex problem and then high performance is a complex problem on top of that. So we're kind of dealing with two complex problems as a coach that are kind of colliding together to create one massive complex problem, I guess. Um, so in terms of creating a system, so early on as a coach, and I think most lifters and coaches will be able to kind of relate to this part of it, is you're going to mimic the things that you kind of grasp onto, right? You might read something and be like, oh, let's try this, right? So it could be like velocity-based training, and I'm going to make all my training velocity-based training. And then the next shiny objects flash in front of your face, and then you're on to, I'm going to run this type of program now. I'm going to run this type of program now. I don't need variation. I do need variation. There's going to be all this tinkering in between. Um, I think in the beginning, it's really important to mimic those that have had success doing something. Um, and then try to understand why they do things the way that they do it. That way it kind of gives you a good thorough understanding of how they're applying methods to principles. So like for me in the beginning, having Boris Shako as my coach for three years, I mimicked what he did for three years. And then once I kind of understood the, the system, I kind of seen, began to see problems with my lifters that I needed to intervene with and that I needed to come up with solutions for. So then I started tinkering with stuff and then of course, over time, I have my own system. And then I think what's really important too is if you go back to the original example where I was talking about jumping from program to program, what you end up getting there is you, you do something and the novelty of it just drives a response and then you think that program's the best and then it stops working and then that program's the worst. And then you're on to the next thing and the novelty of it drives progress again. And then it's the best thing that's ever happened and then it stops working and once that novelty wears out and then it's the worst thing, you throw it aside and you just, this constant juggling and then eventually you decide you don't want to do the sport. And I think that happens quite a bit. Um, so I think it's really important that you understand the principles. You understand how those who have had success use methods that rely on those principles to get the success that they've had. There's a reason why they have the results in which they have. And you try to understand those aspects of it. And then you start problem solving on your own and you come up with your own system. And then once you have your own system, the next step is being able to continually make it better over time. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, this is having a, a system in place, paying attention, and then finding those holes in it that need to be improved upon or the individualization of it or whatever aspects of it that you feel you need to address. So the first thing that we need to do when we create a system is we need to decide what is important. So I think one of the things that ends up being a giant burden on coaches and lifters, lifters who are coaching themselves basically is who I'm referring to here, is trying to navigate all of the contradictions that you'll see on the internet. So whether technique is important or it's not. 
right? You'll follow certain people who tell you it's not that important as long as you're lifting within the rules of competition. And then they have the other side of it that says technique is the most important aspect of training. And then there's going to be some in-between answers, right? If people were kind of on the fence and they don't know which camp they fit in or they have their own camp. Me personally, I think technique is extremely important. Right, if you're trying to set somebody up for long-term success, we need to be able to maximize leverages to the best of our abilities in order to give us the highest ceiling possible. So yes, you might have a lifter who's got a couple years of experience who likes to squat with their feet very narrow wearing heels. That's a very long lift. At some point, you're not going to be able to outlift the increase in that range of motion. But what I want is I want a system in place that helps me build up the hips, the low back, and the hamstrings so that I can get out wider and I can maximize leverages better. Doesn't mean I force them to lift like that. It means the majority of our program, the specificity part of our program, is going to be to develop strength in those areas because they're lifting that way because they like to lean on their quads and they're willing to sacrifice range of motion to use their quads to lift the most weight now. But there has to be a system in place that allows them to have long-term success. So one, they stick with the sport. You get the benefits of sticking with the sport for a long period of time, and that's more than just hitting PRs. But then on top of that, you're setting them up to be able to continue to hit those PRs because maximizing leverages at some point is going to be important. And the earlier that you do it, the less of a roadblock you're going to hit later on. Um... So the first thing that I put in here, and what, what is important, is I put training powerlifting versus individual physiological pieces. So I think if you take general Western periodization, right? Maybe you have a hypertrophy phase, a strength phase, and then a power phase, right? You wouldn't have a power phase in powerlifting typically, but it just helps me get this point across. Where first X amount of time in training, we're focused on one physiological piece, building hypertrophy. The second, we're then focusing on the strength aspects, that one physiological piece. And then the third, maybe we're peaking for a competition or something like that. But if you're doing power, there's a separate physiological piece. And then we're going to cycle back through. So one of the arguments against a Western periodization model is when you move on to strength, you can lose hypertrophy gains. And also you're trying to put time limits onto everything. But the argument about the time limits, I'm not sure it holds much weight. It might in the really like microscopic viewpoint of things, but macroscopically, if they're repeating those cycles over and over and over again, over a long period of time, they're going to build hypertrophy. They're going to build strength. They're going to build power. They're just maybe these undulating growths and declines that kind of occur with it. But over a macroscopic scale, it probably works. Um, Me personally, I want to train the sport of powerlifting. I don't care about the physiological pieces. So following a dynamic systems theory approach, it's a holistic approach to training. So we have the performer, right? So the athlete and the environment and the task. And they're going to respond to the environment that we put them in, including the task, and they're going to adapt based upon that. So we're designed as human beings to learn by moving through our environment. So the training situation that we're setting up in the gym is we're trying to set up an environment that's going to improve powerlifting performance, right? So for me, when I think of what's important, technique definitely is important. And then we have the mental and the physical components of the sport, right? So the technique with the mental and physical 
they do kind of go hand in hand because if you're nervous, your technique's gonna break down. If you're physically weak in certain areas compared to others, your technique's not gonna be the best that it could be, right? And even then, even if your close stance squat looks really good, technique-wise, that's not what we're looking for. That's not optimal because the range of motion is much longer. What I want is I want you to be physically strong in the areas that you need to be physically strong with so that we can minimize the range of motion, which then allows you to lift more weight more easily. And then, of course, we need to deal with the mental aspects of the sport as well. Um, so in terms of like building a program based off of this, if we train powerlifting, right? So we just take the sport itself. And we think of it, you go onto the platform, you have nine lifts, right? The second and the third ones are going to be pretty fucking hard, right? But the third ones are probably going to be the ones that have an emotional response, as long as we understand the actual competing strategies, right? So if you never touch 90%, but then you're opening up at 90 to 92%, the opener is gonna have a mental response, and then the second a mental response, and then the third a mental response. And doing that nine times is exhausting. And one of the things that I've felt over time is the more singles I do, the greater that my preparation for a competition feels. Like I feel in better shape at a meet because I don't get those emotional responses to heavy lifts because I do them all the time. So I don't feel like I run out of gas coming into deadlifts. I feel always pretty good. So my conditioning is relevant, I mean is related to my mental skills within the sport to not allowing my emotions to kind of run away with my energy under those circumstances. And then, of, of course, the, the physical and the technical, right? One of the things with technique that I really struggled with earlier on was I'd always try to make every rep look good, right? And I think this is the argument of a lot of submaximal lifting, right? So you get a lot of good-looking repetitions at 70 to 80%, 75 to 85%, whatever the range that people are typically using. But there's a much, there's much greater requirements once we start getting in that and I know a lot of the literature will look at 85% and greater but I'm telling you it's a lot closer to that 100% and a comp lift is that 97 to 100% that's very fucking different from everything else it has greater physical demands on certain areas there's a greater technical demand because there's greater weight trying to push you around and then the mental demands are greater it's a very different lift but we know that we can't lift 97 to 100% all of the time it becomes much too difficult to recover from. So what we end up using is we use a lot of variations. So by using a variation, I can drop the absolute load to about 85 to 92% of their one rep max, but it's at 97 to 100% strain. So they're getting, they're challenging themselves in those variations to almost 100% of their capacity within those variations. But the drop in absolute load definitely helps, number one, recovery costs. And then on top of that, there's still mental aspects to it, right? Because it's fucking hard, so it's going to make you nervous. But at the same time, you're not necessarily gonna have the negative drawbacks of missing a competition lift, which can be much more emotional than missing a camera bar box squat. Like, people just don't tend to care about those as much as the other things. Why are you laughing? It's just true. I know it's true. Yeah. I'm not joking. <laughs> I lost my spot, thanks Jess. But 
then we need to take into consideration the specificity and the progressive overload. So knowing that 97 to 100% is a lot more specific to training powerlifting as opposed, as opposed to maybe individual physiological pieces. So what they're told to do is on week one when they get a max effort in a variation, they're told to leave five to 10 pounds on the bar. Um, for week three so that we can beat week one by five pounds. So there's a, there's a momentum construct driven into this, right? So we want those little blasts of dopamine and testosterone. It helps learning, number one, but it helps with motivation and it, it helps give them clear goals within training. So when we think of deliberate practice, that's one of the things that's really important is having clear goals. So if they understand the structure of the program itself, that we're gonna hit this weight week one, Week two, we're gonna work on something and really develop some technical efficiency. Week three, if we do everything well by making good decisions and by getting 1% better technically, we're gonna hit a five pound PR. Because even though we left five to 10 pounds on week one, week two is very high volume. So training fatigue builds up in this process. So it makes that five pound PR a lot more challenging. But at the same time, it rewards you for doing things well. And then because I feel technique is important, I can't just tell them technique is important. It's something that you need to experience. So you can communicate knowledge, but you can't communicate wisdom. Wisdom needs to be experienced. So if each block, I can give them that experience of hitting a weight, working on technique, hitting a PR, it's gonna just reinforce those principles that technique is really important as we're building up the other aspects, the physical aspects. And usually what I try to do with the variations is I try to make it so it works on a technical piece of the lift. And this could be as simple as, all right, well, they're struggling in the bottom of a squat, so we're gonna work on this to fix this. Or if they're struggling, a lot of times, like two to three inches above depth, that's where the hips and the low back really kick in. And you'll see some people really hit the fucking brakes there. So maybe there's variations. Maybe we're using bands, maybe we're using chains, high pins, high boxes, stuff like that to really train that part of the lift. So I do try to make it relevant to the technical inefficiencies and the physical weaknesses of the lifter themselves. So it helps build that. And at the same time, because there are max effort lifts and you are going to get nervous and you're going to get tired and there's not gonna be always success, right? So failure is almost built into this because it's impossible for every month of every year for you to just continuously hit five pound PRs on these, um, on these variations. So there is a failure built in to help with the mental pieces, but also success to work on the mental pieces as well. And then the fact that training has consequences, the lifters need to develop tools to handle the heavier weights. And so when we're constantly handling these heavy weights and we're training powerlifting, it's becoming extremely specific to the sport for mental, physical, and technical aspects. And then on top of that, making sure that we're lining up the rest of the program to work on weaknesses of each lifter and being patient with it. So if we're trying to build low back, hip and hamstring strength, and some lifters, that might take years to catch up to their quads. But that's okay because if we're in this for the long term and we understand that these are the things that we need to improve upon, and then we put the focus and instead of, if you have a lifter who's new, right? So let's use this as an example. Instead of always looking at five pound PRs as the benchmark, you can take any new lifter and it's very easy to have them see progress, right? Five pounds at a time for a brand new lifter is very, very easy to see. Anybody can do that. It doesn't take great coaching. 
But if you can redirect that away from the external outcomes and allow them to see the changes that are happening, that, okay, so, yeah, maybe your squat went up, but who fucking cares? And if it didn't, who cares? But maybe now you're not that same close stance squatter. Maybe now you're in flats and you're a little bit wider. So we're seeing that, that self-organization to a more effective stance or more efficient I should say not effective a more efficient stance in that squat because your hips your low back and your hamstrings are getting stronger but even that small change might take a year and then it might take another year to get to the next point and like at some point I mean obviously we're not going to be multiply wide when I say like a wider stance heels slightly outside of shoulders is going to be best for a raw lifter it's the shortest range of motion so it might take a long time to go from having heels inside shoulders wearing lifters, which allows you to come even more forward, to being in flats and then, you know, three, four inches on each side widening your stance a little bit. Even though it doesn't seem like a lot, this is a sport of millimeters, so each inch becomes a lot. Um, but allowing them to see those things, and as long as they understand where you're coming from with this, and that it'll pay off in the end because we're seeing the strength gains in the physical places that we need to and the technical pieces and then obviously the mental stuff can be tied in but that's usually separate conversations okay so if we train the sport of powerlifting itself i think we're going to have greater outcomes because there's a more holistic approach right it kind of involves everything that the sport involves allows you to identify strengths and weaknesses and allows you to work on sport specific qualities uh, mental, physical, and technical qualities, sport-specific qualities. But sometimes the specificity might be, all right, you're that close stance squatter. Our program is going to be wide stance box squats or something like that where we're really trying to build that posterior chain, right? And we're going to do a lot of good mornings and, and other things, right, to really build up those areas, and that's going to be our main focal point. Um, so then we know programs need to have progressive overload at the same time, right? And I think what ends up happening a lot of times is with the progressive overload, as coaches, we think, oh, seven days is up, so maybe we should advance training a little bit. And even with the max effort stuff, if you're not running it the way that we run it, where it's done for a whole block with rep work, submaximal rep work in between, I think you run the risk of always trying to push for a PR every max effort day. So a group like Westside who does max effort days every day, every max effort upper, max effort, effort lower every week, they're not hitting five pound PRs every time they step into the gym. They're probably hitting a PR once a month, once every other month, something like that on a variation to show that progress is happening. It's not gonna be consistently five pound PRs every time they put forth that max effort lift. It's physiologically not possible. So it's knowing when to call your shots, when it's there, when it's not, when to make the right choices, when to kind of put your efforts and your energy somewhere else, right? So how can we put progressive overload in a program like this? One of the things that I tend to do is our number of lifts stay very, very constant. And like I was saying before, as coaches, I think we think seven days is up, so we have to progress something and we have to change something. But there's gonna be an individual response to learning, and that's what we're doing. We're learning a skill. So everybody's gonna learn at different rates. So I have them write in their RPEs for their last set of all the work that they do. And I'll only progress training when I see recovery in the right spot. I see 
good solid repetitions, not a lot of thinking. They're nice and fluid. And then we'll add a little bit more weight and we'll challenge that lifter in, in that manner. In some cases, their weights might stay the same through an entire block and they'll just keep repeating the same thing. As long as what we want to see is we want to see those RPEs drop. So let's say they're doing squats 70% five by five or something like that. And the first week that they do it, their last set RPEs are nine. But then the next week, so I'd keep it the same there. The next week, it's an eight and a half. All right, so we are recovering and it's getting easier. I don't necessarily have to make any adjustments the other way. So let's say week one, it's a nine. Week two, it's a nine and a half. I might drop it to 65%, but sometimes I'll keep the load the same and I'll just do more sets. So instead of a 70% five by five, I might do 70% eight by three. So instead of it being a nine on that last set, you end up dropping it to like an eight or a seven or something like that. So it's more in that realm. And then we'll repeat that a couple times and maybe a six by four, and then we'll get back to the five by five. But let's say it's a nine and I decide to keep the five by five and the next week it's an eight and a half. All right, we're moving in the right direction. The next week, week three, we keep it the same. It's an eight, then it's a seven. I'll probably let that seven lock in for one more week. So I'll leave it there for one more week and then maybe we go up to 75%. And it's gonna, so for that lifter there, you're talking a good five, six week period of doing the same weights before I progress the loads, right? But for somebody else, they might do that 70% five by five and they put a seven and I immediately go up to 72 to 75%, somewhere in that range. So usually if it's only been one week at that 70%, I'll do 72%. So we just make a small two and a half, 2% increase in weight and then we see how that goes. And then if that's easy, 75% the following week. So we can still be very conservative with our jumps just because they're recovering well. And so in terms, and I know this is getting on a different topic, but like recovery is not this black or white thing. It's a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have optimal. This is where no matter what you do, you could be fucking drunk, literally smoking meth, coming into the gym, hitting PRs. It doesn't matter. Right. And then we have neutral. So this is where most people will lie, where some days will be good, some days not so good, some days good, some days not so good, but there's nothing really bad to report, right? You kind of, you feel pretty good. You don't typically have any of those like typical overtraining symptoms. You're not tired, burnt out, no nagging issues, stuff like that. And then at the other end, we have this suboptimal recovery where now you, you probably see the same swings in performance, but now maybe your elbows hurt, your knees, your back, you're a little burnt out. Uh, you're not really looking forward to training. Motivation's waning, like the typical overtraining symptoms. And then there's spectrums of this. It's not like you're one or the other of these things. A lot of people be neutral, suboptimal, neutral, optimal, neutral, like within that range most of the time. And hopefully we don't really hit the extreme over here, the suboptimal extreme. And it'd be great to hit the optimal extreme close to a competition. But that usually doesn't happen because we're amateur athletes in a in a sport that we still have to have jobs and stuff like that. So we can't dedicate all of our resources to training. And typically the majority of people who are doing this niche sport aren't high level athletes to begin with. And a lot of them don't have a lot of athletic background. So sleep, nutrition, stuff like that tends to not necessarily be as dialed in as it should. So we kind of hover in the middle most of the time. But progressive overload has to fit with that recovery scale. So the coach has to be able to take a macroscopic view of training and be like, okay, there's some ups and downs here. We're probably in this neutral period. They're not reporting any nagging issues. Let's just keep an eye on it and let's make sure we don't bump it into getting closer to that suboptimal range. So if I'm seeing a lot of those fluctuations in daily training numbers, and they're putting 70% five by five as an RPE seven, 
I'm probably repeating that weight longer than I typically would, just to allow for easier, to, easier recovery. Because we're not in a great space, a great spot, and it can be very easy to add 5% to that day, creep up those RPEs, and then take somebody from neutral into neutral suboptimal. Now my elbows hurt. Right? So understanding progressive overload from an individual standpoint and having a system in place to be able to monitor it, that's why I find having the max effort lifts, the way that we do them, to be so important. So yeah, week one, maybe they're not hitting any PRs, right? Week three, they come in, it's a five pound variation PR that they hit, that's great. But even if they don't, we're still building momentum, we know where they're at, and I can still see this microscopic picture of performance measures and a microscopic picture of performance measures, right? So if over a larger scale, things haven't, they're not hitting PRs and variations, then it just becomes a different conversation, like, hey, what, what's going on here, right? But we gotta look at other aspects. Are we progressing in other places? So am I seeing their technique just change, right? Did they hit all these weights and heels and now all of a sudden they're in flats and a little wider and it's a little bit less? but we're hitting five pound PRs over the last three, four months, we're in a good spot. It's probably just where their, their baseline is in those actual positions compared to where they were lifting before. So there are some adjustment periods um, that are gonna be seen within this, but there's enough information coming to me to be able to make these adjustments and having a system in place becomes really important because every time that I make an adjustment, I get feedback back. And I was just saying this to Jess, but over the last six years, I've analyzed over 90,000 hours of training. That's a lot of training. And the fact that a good chunk of it has been developing my own system, I kind of understand what tends to work more often than not in terms of adjusting training and when to do it and when not to. There is this experience that plays into that by experiencing the actual training and having relationships with the lifters and stuff like that. Um, so progressive overload can't just be this random thing. Oh, well, we're eight weeks out from a competition, so let's drive up volume today, right? But it, if it doesn't fit where they are in that recovery scale or where they are in life really at that time, you, you gotta have different ways of doing it. So even in that case there, if I take that lifter, when we're eight weeks out from a competition, a lot of times what I'll do is in earlier phases of training, I'll really push the volume on their day four where they'll have squat and deadlift and we'll do 50 total lifts, so 25 of each. And if I can in phase two really bump that up to say 80% five by five of each, which is a really fucking hard day, and if they're keeping their RPEs below an eight or an eight or less, that's pretty fucking good. But then when we get into a competition phase, our phase three, where we get more max effort lifts. So every day one and day two, we have a max effort lift. And then every other week, we have a max effort lift on day three. So there's a lot more of those. What I'll tend to do on that day, I'm not trying to push overload there. I want the sports-specific overload, progressive overload to happen with the max effort lifts. So what I might do on that day is bump it down to 70% for five by fives. And then maybe give them shorter rest or something like that so they're still getting good conditioning work. But I'm not trying to push that volume anymore. I've pushed that volume. Now I'm just kind of maintaining a level with it. And even then, I might increase the weight as we go through the weeks, depending how recovery is going, and then bump it down again as we get closer to actually testing our competition lifts. So 
knowing where to put that progressive overload. And I think it gets really easy to try to cover, to try to continue with that stuff, keep doing the same weights because they're reporting low RPEs. But if we can drop that training load, maintain that same level of volume and conditioning on that day, with having a much lower recovery cost, we can put the energy and resources into the places we need to put it in. So that's why the training's broken out into phases. So our phase one has zero deadlift max effort lifts. It's just light submaximal deadlift work. A lot of the older power lifters who've been around the sport a long time that I've talked to have said they wish that they had pulled heavy less frequently. So it's just a way I can pull back on that to hopefully increase the longevity. That's just a, a wisdom being passed down. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But there are benefits to it because the max effort squats can still push the deadlifts. And you're still getting some maximal deadlift work. And we only deadlift one day per week in this block. And we do an upper-lower split. So you're actually getting greater breaks in between your squats, in between your lower body stuff and your upper body stuff than what we get later in training. And then phase two, our frequency increases. So in phase two, we have our squat max effort, day one, bench, day two, and then we'll have bench sub max work, deadlift max effort, day three, and then day four, we do that squat deadlift day like I was talking about with upper body accessories. And then the following week, it's all reps, but in the same frequency. And then we hit the max efforts week three. And then every week four, we kind of build in this little deload. It's 80% comp lifts for doubles or triples, four to five sets. Nothing crazy. Just see what everything looks like. Make sure we're not getting too far removed from the competition lifts um, and getting some exposures to them. And then if they feel a little awkward, look a little awkward, I can adjust some of the submaximal work. So they're getting more competition lifts and we can just make sure we're still developing the right skills, the specific skills that we need um, but there's a, there's a flow and there's a general idea within the system that allows the coach to kind of navigate the complexities of the lifter and the complexities of high performance and the differences that each lifter is going to bring especially in a sport like powerlifting. like you could have a lifter that has a really hard physical job and then a lifter who works part-time or goes to school and has a lot more free time and recovers a lot easier because they're a little bit younger right and you have to have options for them and then of course everything in between and having a system in place understanding these simple understanding these principles but having methods to allow the coach to be able to kind of navigate the complexity of it is i think it's one of the most important things and i know in a lot of cases people will have we always look for answers from something right so I know there's groups that use the acute chronic work ratio. I tried that. It doesn't work for powerlifting. No matter how you want to try to sell it, it logically makes sense, but you're connecting dots that don't exist. And there's a reason why researchers have asked for that research to be retracted because you could just put random numbers in and the injury results are no different than the actual realistic numbers. So the math just doesn't work. Or we'll use fancy spreadsheets to try to track this. I think questionnaires can be helpful but at the end of the day, I think in a lot of times what questionnaires can do is it can layer expectations for the lifter. Well, I feel like crap today, so training is probably going to go crappy. And that's not a mental skill I want to train, that you need to feel good in order to compete well. That doesn't have to be the case. I want those days where you go in to know like, hey, today's going to be a little bit harder. I'm going to use my breathing 
skills. I'm going to use my personal statement. I'm going to get into the right headspace. I'm going to compete to the best of my ability under these circumstances here. There are opportunities for that to, for that to happen. Um, where I think in a lot of cases, a program will look at that questionnaire and be like, oh, well, you're in the red, so let's pull back today. Right? And pulling back today, what that trains is every time it's hard, I need to pull back. And that's not how you compete. But if the coach has a more, like fatigue doesn't just build up in one day. You can have one really hard training day. It's not going to be the end of everything. You just have to understand that you got to get a little bit back somewhere else, right, recovery-wise. So if you look at a week and you see it was a really hard week, in that case there, if they had like grinding out reps or missed reps on all their max effort lifts, I'm still not moving up the rep work. We're going to keep the same weights for the rep work because I'm not going to add more stress. I'm going to allow them to recover a little bit. And of course, I have that week four, which is only three days and far less volume to allow them to kind of recover a little bit more. So we don't really get too, too far behind the eight ball. We're a little bit proactive with that. But there's opportunities for them not to pull back when they feel like crap. And so that we can learn how to compete under those circumstances. And to me, that's really important because that's what training powerlifting is. It's not about just going in when you feel great all the time. And that's, you see these people where it's, they talk about the taper like it's some magical thing. And it's like, well, maybe you need to feel that way because you don't know how to compete if you feel like shit. And of course, we have a taper that we use. Um, You know, we don't want fatigue close to a competition. But, you, you know, I think a lot of people just really have a hard time putting themselves in positions that are less than optimal and being their best. And that's what sports is about. It's about learning how to be your best under less than ideal circumstances. So being a high-level competitor requires. It's very rarely ever going to work out that you just feel great. And you see it all the time on the Internet when people make posts on this. Oh, my weight cut didn't go how I expected. This didn't go as planned. This, And it's like... Yes, it did. That's how, that's how you trained. You got out of that meet what you trained for. And there are maybe periods of time where you let your weight get out of control. That's why your weight cut didn't go well. Or you didn't push yourself in the gym. You just expect things. When I see people use RPEs and they're like, RPE 7 and their nose is bleeding and their eyes are popping out of their head. And it's like, that was a 9.5. But you're just trying to convince yourself it's lighter than what it is. And then you continue to push harder based off of that because you think that's the right thing to do. And then all of a sudden, you go to a competition and the numbers aren't there that day. Well, it's because you weren't paying attention. You weren't honest with yourself in training. You're trying to convince yourself and the internet that it's a lighter weight than what it is. Or you're hitting, this is my new favorite thing, squat bench deadlift days that are still a fucking thing in training, where people are doing RPE 7 or RPE 8 singles, whatever they are, and literally they'll hit their RPE 8 singles. And like to put things in perspective, an RPE 8 single for us is a fucking break from training. But what they'll do is they'll hit their RPE 8 singles and the belt's fucking flying off. They're celebrating like they just won an Olympic gold fucking medal. And it's like, what are you doing? Like you're getting so emotional in training. Like those are the mental skills that are going to literally hamper you the second that you go into a car.